chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Oh, man. Right before he dies, Jesus says um, three, at least in English, very important words. It's really uh, one word in uh, Greek or the Aramaic, telestai. Uh, It means it is finished. And it means more than just it is finished. It has the connotation that everything that he came to do was accomplished at that moment. Uh, So few of us, I think, will be able to look back on our lives and say, everything I ever wanted to do or was supposed to do, everything, I did it. But Jesus did. Jesus did because he did what he heard the Father saying. He only spoke what the Father told him to speak. He only went and healed people when the Father led him to heal people. I mean, think of all the stuff in Palestine he could have done, all the sick people, all the the injustice that was being done, and yet Jesus on the cross has the um, has acknowledgement that he did everything that he came to do. When the finished work of Jesus on the cross occurred, and it was finished, it was finished for you, it was finished for me, there is Jesus plus nothing in this life that will bring you true life. Only Christ. But when the finished work of Jesus was on, uh, on the cross occurred and the resurrection followed, the power of the resurrection, which we're going to talk a little bit about this morning, then the outpouring of the Spirit occurred some 40, 50 days later at the day of Pentecost. A birth occurred. A birth. The Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was born. The called out ones, us, we were birthed on that day, through that event. So through the cross, the resurrection, the outpouring of the Spirit, those who are followers of Jesus Christ become the called out ones. We are the disciples of the cross. We're disciples of the resurrection. We're disciples of the outpouring of the Spirit. When you entered again, I hope you noticed, if you haven't already, the great mosaic that was done by Josh and by Abby uh, as a result of all the pieces of paper that you tore up on Easter Sunday um, that talked about the ugliness of your life, the ugliness of sin, and we brought it to the cross, and out of that we see the, the glorious work, really, that Christ has done in us. Larry, will you help me here? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We who receive forgiveness of sins and are followers of Jesus Christ, known as disciples, we have been transformed. He became sin for us so that we in turn might become the righteousness of God. We are the people of God. What we're looking at this morning is what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Last week, if you remember, in Philippians 2, we looked at um, how we walk in unity together as the people of God. Today, I want to look at what does it mean, what do we lose, and what do we gain 
as followers of Jesus Christ. Because everything in life is a trade, right? Hello? Think about it. You're trading all the time. Even if you don't want to trade, you're trading, whether you know it or not. By not trading, you're trading. I mean, sometimes, I know I'm playing with words a little bit, but every moment you spend doing whatever, you're trading that moment for something else you could have been doing, right? So even if you're just sitting at home doing nothing, you've decided to trade that moment for mowing the grass, or you've decided to trade that moment for whatever else you could be doing. Life is constantly trading. And here's another truth. You're always either trading up or trading down. You're always either trading up or trading down. The question is not whether you're trading, and the question is not whether the trade is neutral. The question is, are you trading up or trading down? In the Christian life, you're trading something. You give up something by becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, but you also gain something. So is it a good trade or a bad trade is really the question that Paul is asking this morning. Are we trading up or are we trading down? Paul begins chapter 3 of Philippians by saying this. He lays out his life, as it were, before he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And here are the things he says that were to his advantage, to his favor. He says that he was a man of national privilege. He was born to a pure Hebrew family. That he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the right, correct day. Anyway, he had this national privilege that was his as a result of birth. He had legal privileges. He was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he held to all the Orthodox doctrine. He had been trained by the greatest people. He, uh, according to the law, he was blameless. He followed all the rules. So he's got this nationalistic privilege. He's got this legal privilege. And he also talks about this religious privilege he has. He was zealous. He opposed the enemies of God, at least as he perceived them. Paul claimed that he had everything that a Jew of his day could have. Very few. Very few within Judaism could make the claims that Paul was making about what he had in relationship to what he saw as his favor before God. Just to give you a modern example, let's talk about me. Um, I, I, I was born into a Christian family. My mom and dad were strong followers of Jesus Christ. My grandparents were strong followers of Jesus Christ. I was raised in an American, because we are God's chosen people today. I was raised, that's tongue-in-cheek, uh, I, I was raised in an American Christian home. I went to church every Sunday. From the time I was, think I was a month old, I've been in church almost every Sunday for all my 50 years. I went to a Baptist college. I went to a Baptist seminary. I obeyed all the rules. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I didn't have premarital sex. I didn't steal. I was honest with people. I didn't cheat on tests. I was as good as I was told I was supposed to be. I opposed evil. I marched in anti-abortion protests. 
I stood up to those who were against Christian beliefs. I was very religious and very zealous. Suddenly, when you start to look at the things you've done or I've done, we think, hey, you know what? I'm doing good. I measure up. Look at how good I am, especially look how good I am compared to those others around me. Surely, if anybody deserves to get into heaven, it must be me. I mean, God would not, would he? Be so unfair as to send a good person like me away? I mean, I've tried my best. That's got to count for something on top of everything. Aren't they singing the Star Spangled Banner in heaven? I mean, I'm an American Christian. The problem is this. You're using the wrong measuring stick. And when you use the wrong measuring stick, you come up thinking you measure up every time when, in fact, you don't even know you're using the wrong measuring device. The rich young ruler, the Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, were all looking at the outside, not the inside. And by those standards, they thought they held up well. But what they didn't understand completely is that God looks at not the outward appearance. What does God look at? God looks at the heart. And the sins of attitudes and appetites matter probably more than those of our actions. Jesus even came and said, if you, if you look at a woman and lust after, you've already committed adultery in your heart. If you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. Jesus started pointing men toward the condition of their hearts, not just their outward actions. One day on a road to smoke out some followers of Jesus Christ, this guy, Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul, is met by the risen Christ. And suddenly he realizes that everything that was to his advantage when compared to the brightness and glory of God in Jesus Christ measured nothing. It all added up to less than nothing when compared to Jesus Christ. That all his works of righteousness were not enough. But in that moment, There was an instantaneous miracle of grace that transferred Paul when he received Jesus and called him Lord. An instantaneous work of grace that not everything that Paul had added up couldn't get him there. But what Christ did for him through the cross, through the resurrection, moved Paul from where he thought he was to where Jesus actually wanted him. Paul had to give up some things. National privilege, religious zeal, legal standing in order to receive the grace of God. What does he say about that here? And this speaks to us as followers of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? How do we trade up? Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11 says this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Moving on, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. First point, what do we have to lose? What do we have to lose? Verses 7 and 8, I just want to review them. He says, but whatever was to my profit, national gain, religious zeal, legal privilege, all of those things, what was to my gain, to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish. Paul talks about three considers in this passage. He talks about, he considers that what was his for what was for his profit, he now considers loss. Takes his profit, says it wasn't, it was, it was a loss. Isn't that, pretty, isn't that sad? When you think you're profiting, you think you've made an investment, you think your profit is going up, when in fact it's a loser. That's the height of deception. And that's where many of us are. We think we're winning. But in fact, we're less than winning. We're trading down on a consistent basis, and we're losing. He considers every... Not only does he consider what was for his profit now a loss, he considers everything a loss. And then on top of that, he actually considers them rubbish. Not only what is loss, but it's just trash. That word rubbish, by the way, uh, is a strong word uh, in the language. It's not just trash. It's, um, I'll try and say this nicely, um, it's dung. He considers it dung. I mean, that's how bad he considers it. I was going to use crap, but I didn't know that that would be a really good word on Sunday morning. But that's what he's saying. I mean, he just considers it dung. Every, all that stuff, that's what it just a pile of dung. I mean, that's strong language in a church on Sunday morning, ain't it? In other words, the things that you could cherish and hold on to. Now, this is really graphic is what Paul is saying. It's like I'm cherishing dung. How stupid is that? I carry it around. Oh, isn't this special? No, get rid of it. It stinks. It's time to unload it. What do we lose? We lose everything, but it ain't much compared to the glory of Christ. Here's the picture Paul clearly paints. Many people think that they're going along in life, successful in work, enjoying their hobbies, wanting, wanting to add something small to finish out their lives, right? They think, I'm a good person, I'm working hard, 
I'm a law-abiding American going to church. What I need is I just need a little something, a little something-something to finish off what's already a pretty good me. And so this Jesus thing looks pretty good. So what I'll do is to who I am, I'll add the Jesus thing, and then I got it made. I'll do my part. Jesus will do his part. And we'll rock and roll together. You know, Jesus will not be an addition to anything in your life. This is an exchanged life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is where? It's gone. He's not asking you to add him to your old. He's saying the new has come. Get rid of the old, take in the new. We've been controlled by Christ. Words like slave and son and are used in the New Testament. It's the picture of Jesus Christ at the center of who we are. And once those things that were of value to us, they no longer have value because all things are made new. Nationality, religious works, achievements, education, none of those add up to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Paul, who put so much confidence in those things, now has no confidence in them at all. So what did Paul lose? He lost everything. He lost everything. He traded everything. I mean, this is let's make a deal at a grand scale. Do you want to trade everything that you are? Give up everything of your past? Now, here's the deal. We're gonna, the second point is this. What do we have to gain? What do we have to gain? Well, we're going to gain, you'll see, everything. And all these things that were and added up to nothing... When we give them to God and Jesus Christ becomes Lord, he transforms them and uses them in a totally and completely different way. For instance, is going to church a bad thing? No, it's... Thank you, Dottie. Some of you are thinking about it. I don't know. Can I get out of this? (laughs) No, going to church is a good thing. But you can go to church trying to get God's approval trying to add him to your life, thinking that your works add up to right standing before God, and it's a worthless endeavor. Or you can go to church because you're a redeemed child of God and you want to declare he is worthy. I want to give him my life. I want to be refreshed in his presence. I want the power of the Spirit to overwhelm me. And it's a good thing. You could go to work in one way. You could go to work in another. You can give money in one. You can give money in another. One way adds up to life-giving fruit. The other is just, again, worthless. So what do we have to gain? Jim Elliott said this, He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You get to, what you're giving up, you're going to lose it anyway. What you get to gain, you'll never lose. It'll always be yours. Here are the things you get to gain, and they are good. They are really good. The first thing you get to gain is the knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of Christ. Philippians 3.8 says, What is more, I consider 
everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Look, this is, we, I understand that for most of us, uh, we think knowing means intellect, intellectual. I know about Jesus. I know the stories. I know the stuff. I know about Jesus. Paul's not saying that you lost all this in order that you can know some stuff about Jesus. He's saying that you know Jesus, and he knows you. This is a very uh, intimate word, knowing. It's that knowing in the biblical sense, you know what I mean? Uh, It's knowing. You are in an intimate relationship with Jesus. John 17, 3, Jesus prays, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is a, a knowing who God is. Here's my question today. Listen, if you haven't given up everything and if you don't know Christ in an intimate way, then you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that you know God and know Jesus. Not knowing the facts about him, it's not, that's not enough. Not knowing the stories, not even believing the stories, but receiving him as the one who leads your life, guides you, that you know him, that you're in a relationship with him. We gain salvation because salvation is knowing him in a personal way. Not knowing about him, but rather knowing him. We also gain the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, Philippians 3, 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Righteousness, by the way, is a legal term, not a moral term. Look look up here for a second. Some of you are right and I understand. It's a legal term. Uh, We think righteousness is a moral term. Am I righteous? Am I acting right? Am I acting in a moral way? But in this biblical sense, righteousness is a legal term. And it's legal in this way. When I was a sinner, when I was back here and all this stuff, I thought I was doing good. That was for my loss. I was apart from Christ. And I was apart from God. God declared me unrighteous because of my sin. I wasn't right. I didn't have any right standing to come into God's presence because legally I was a sinner, I was separated from God, and death was my cloak. Now, when I come to receive Jesus, what did I do morally to get moved from there to here? Did I act right enough? Now, see, that's what Paul's saying. I can't act right enough to get from there to here. But what God did for me through the cross of Christ, he's now declared me right. I am the righteousness of God. When I come to Jesus and trade all of that stuff, what a trade. Think about it. I couldn't get from there to here on my own, but God did it for me through Jesus. Now I'm declared right. Hey, here's the best truth, I think. Now that I'm here, what do I got to do to stay right? It's a trick question, really. Don't go back here. Oh, I got to start living right again. 
Now that I'm there, I've got to live here because if I don't, then God's going to be mad at me. If I don't start giving money to the church, God will break my fridge. My car will break down. Things are bad because God's going to get his money somehow, right? No, I don't, I'm not going to go back and live according to the law. I'm going to live as who God says I am. I am, I am no more right in God's sight. Now, I want to live a life that's glorifying to him, but it's not in order that I can continue to achieve right standing because legally, I'm right. He's already made the declaration through Jesus Christ. What a trade. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous over here. Not even one. No one. I don't care who you think they are and how good they think they are. They're not righteous over here. But when they come to Christ and they are righteous, total transformation occurs. I also gain the fellowship of Christ. I, now, this is, a, this is a tough one. And I'll tell you why. Because you think you're getting something, or at least you're desiring something, but you're getting the whole package. You're getting the whole deal. Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Hallelujah, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. I want to walk in resurrection power. And then the rest. And, that and is a key, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Ho, 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 ho. Becoming like him in his death. Whoa, this is getting worse. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, it looks bad, but it's really good. It looks like it might be tough, and it is. But God empowers us to live this life that he's called us to live. The fellowship, this fellowship is personal. That I may know him. That I may know him. We've already talked about law. Law is rules, right? Law means i got to obey the rules. Christ is Savior, Master, Companion, Friend, Brother. I want to know Him. It's powerful. I want to know the power of His resurrection. Do you know that the power of the resurrection, according to Paul in Ephesians 1, is the greatest demonstration of the power of God ever? Ever? I mean, you start thinking back, you know? Crossing the Red Sea thing, that was pretty good. Calling down fire from heaven, that was a pretty big display of God. Holding the sun back so they could win that battle, not bad. Paul says the greatest demonstration of the power of God was when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Here's an incredible truth. That same resurrection power is at work in you and me. The greatest demonstration of the power of God, this is in Ephesians 1, The greatest demonstration of the power of God, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which you have been called, and the power of his resurrection. That is at work within us. It is at work within you and me. If we'll just receive and tap into God's resurrection power. The truth is this. On a basic level, we were, before we knew Christ, we weren't barely breathing I'm, you know, that old uh, Princess Bride, he's mostly dead. You, you know that? Uh, he's not really dead. He's mostly dead. When, before we knew Christ, we were dead dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
We had no breath of life within us. But when Jesus comes into our lives, the resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, raised you from death to life. So every moment that you live in Christ, the resurrection power of God is at work within you. But because of his great love for us, it says in Ephesians 2, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ, with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, my tongue is getting all tied. It is by grace you have been saved. Look, if you don't go away with much of anything else this morning, know this. You are alive because God made you alive. And as a result, the resurrection power of God is at work within you. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means you're alive. Quit going around thinking, what, you know, I'm pitiful. Woe is me. Life is horrible. Blah, 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 blah. At some point, tap into the resurrection power of God that says, you know what? It was worse before. I was dead, but now, but now I'm alive. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is both a fact to be believed and an event to be experienced. You can't believe the fact and not receive the event and still be made alive. Nor can you think you can experience the event without believing the fact. The two, according to Paul, go hand in hand. That Jesus Christ was literally, historically raised from the dead. And because he was, we are too. Do you know them both? I want to know that power of the resurrection. But following Jesus Christ, what we also gain is a level of pain. It's a painful. We want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. The word fellowship there is the exact same word, koinonia, which means communion. In a moment, we're going to come to communion. What, what, what are we celebrating here? We're celebrating the cross. We're celebrating Jesus' broken body and blood that was spilled for us. And when we take it into ourselves, commune with him, do you know you're saying, I I want to receive everything Christ has. I want to receive the resurrection, but I also want to receive the fellowship of suffering for Christ if that's what he calls me to. Here's one of the unavoidable truths of life, you're going to suffer. Bad things are going to happen. You will experience suffering. The person you marry may not turn out like you thought they did or were. They may even change. Ladies, listen to this. You might not be able to change them. They might actually get worse rather than better. Well, how do you handle that? You're Surely this isn't what God wants for me. Surely God wants me to be happy, right? Isn't that the highest goal of all life? Is happiness in this world? How does this translate? Well, the power of the gospel is this, that we can't run away from suffering. But instead, we, we say, I want the whole deal. I, because what if my pain actually makes me more like Jesus? I mean, that's really what Paul's saying. 
my pain, my suffering, it'll make me more like him. What if I avoid all pain and suffering? Could there be a chance I'm not becoming more like him? I, I want to do it because I want to be like him. That's the practical part of this. What do I have to gain? The practical part. I want to become like him. I've been crucified with Christ. Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul is really passionate about this. Paul is saying, I I lost everything, but I've gained so much more. What I lost was just refuse. What I've gained is life. Now, does this mean I have to go around acting weird and talking about Jesus every moment of every day? I wear contacts, in case you didn't know. If I don't have my contacts in or I'm not wearing my glasses, I am not functional. I mean, really, I can't, I, I, I can't see. I couldn't tell who was here other than I can guess by where you normally sit. But I would be unable to see you. Now, when I put my contacts in the morning, in the morning I, I don't. I don't look at my contacts forever. Oh, how wonderful. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't dwell on my contacts day in and day out of every moment. But I tell you this, they are, they are literally the lens through which I see everything. When you come to know Christ, I mean, you do worship him. He is on your thoughts and mind. He's at the forefront of who. But really, he is the, the lens through which you view all, everything, the world and everything around you. Following Christ is not just about doing religious activities. Religious activities, are, it's just busy work. Following Christ is knowing Jesus, knowing who he is. There are two extremes here to be avoided. The first extreme is this. Relying on our own strength and abilities. That was Paul. Strong guy, strong privileges, strong life, relying on himself and wanting Jesus to be just an addition to our lives. The other extreme to be avoided is feeling totally unworthy. Concentrating on trying to become better in order that we can be worthy so that then Jesus would receive us. Those two extremes, listen, it doesn't matter how you come into Jesus. What matters is that you come into him, that you know him, that the resurrection power of who he is. You want to be a follower of Jesus Christ? You want to be a disciple of the cross? Count everything else as loss. It's nothing. It's just compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Calvin Miller, who passed away not long ago, said this, The best way to deal with sin is not to attempt reform, but to adore the Savior. I mean, think about this. I got to quit sinning. I got to quit sinning. I got to quit sinning. I got to quit doing this. Got to quit doing that. The more I think about it, I got to quit doing it, the more I'm thinking about it. Instead, if you want to attempt to quit sinning, adore Him. 
Winning over our lower nature is made positive by adoration. While we worship the enthroned and inner Christ, we cannot be intrigued by negative preoccupations with sin. Rules, instead of limiting our sin, define sin, rivet our attention to it, and lead us to desire it. Worship, on the other hand, avoids all interest in sin, pointing our hearts and minds in a totally different direction. When we come to this table today, right now, we're coming to commune with Christ, saying, I have given up everything, and I will give up everything in order to know him. I want to I know the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. When you take this bread, then this cup, it goes into you and permeates every part of you. Christ, be the center of our lives. Christ, be our breath. Be everything about us. Before we come to this table, I want you to just take a moment and say, as a disciple of the cross, I want to receive everything that he has for me. I want to walk in the power. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to become Christ-like. Lord, we thank you this morning for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we pray that you would guide and direct us and that as we come to the table of the Lord right now, that God, you would lead us, you would direct us, that Lord, we would receive you. Thank you, Jesus, that we can become like you, not because of who we are, but because of what you've done and what you continue to do in us. Lord, I pray we come and take this table. We commune with you. We fellowship with you right now. Holy Spirit, I pray you accomplish everything you want accomplished through this time. I want to invite you to the table of the Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member of this church, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to come and to take. The center sections will come down the center aisle, outside sections down the outside aisles. Get the cup and the bread and take it back to your place. And then as a sign of unity, we'll partake of this fellowship, this communion together. Come to the table of the Lord.